take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the New Testament book of John. John's Gospel, chapter 7. John, chapter 7, beginning in verse 53. Hear now the word of the living God. And everyone went to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Now, Lord, we pray that you might incline our hearts to hear, that you might renew our minds, and that you may invigorate our faith through the preaching of your word. We ask that you would comfort us in gospel grace embolden us in our lives of obedience unto thee and help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. There is one passage of Scripture in the New Testament that from early times some desired to remove or diminish We have a count of this in the writings of our brother Augustine in the early 400s and in his mentor Ambrose in the late 300s. The question here in saying that is not so much a question of manuscripts, but of what this text actually says. Augustine writes this, Certain persons of little faith, or rather enemies of the true faith, fearing, I suppose, lest their wives should be given impunity in sinning, removed from their manuscript the Lord's act of forgiveness towards the adulteress, as if he who had said sin no more had granted permission to sin. End quote. The importance of that statement, yes, has to do with how we understand manuscripts and manuscript transmission of the New Testament. But beyond that, brothers and sisters, the importance of that text 
is that this story seemed in the early church to be so bold in its application of grace that there were actually individuals, whether true believers or not, who were afraid that such a text might actually lead people to sin. Here we do have a description of the very bold encounter of Jesus with the religious leaders and the very bold description of mercy which we so often see in the pages of the Gospels. Yes, throughout church history, this has been a favored account. This has been an account that has been used by the Holy Spirit of God to breathe fresh life into souls. Sadly, over the last 150 years or so, this passage has fallen into disrepute, some questioning whether it belongs rightly in the pages of Scripture, sadly. But notice what Augustine says. Some want to take it out because if we leave it in, it might actually convince people that sin is okay. Notice his words, as if the one who said sin no more had granted permission to sin. How could there be such a text in the New Testament that was so riddled with the mercy, the dripping mercy of Christ, that it might cause some people to actually wonder whether it would lead individuals to sin Jesus, in the text that comes before it, has encountered rejection by the religious leaders. In fact, that will be the story of his three-year ministry, won't it? Often they will seek to trick him at every turn, and when they do, he wisely is able to remove himself from these thorny, tricky attempts. I want us to walk through this text tonight, and then after we do so, I want us to see four things which I think are very encouraging for our souls as we simply gaze at Christ. Notice in the text that Jesus has been teaching, everyone returns to his house, but Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. The very next morning, verse 2 says, he comes to the temple. He was often in the temple preaching. The Old Testament said that the Messiah would come to his temple And he sits down and he teaches them. And verse 3, we pick up the drama, don't we? Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. The text actually gives us some very palpable details. This woman was caught in adultery, and the text even picks that up. Notice they say, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. She hadn't gone to the religious leaders to confess sin. She hadn't been confronted by someone over the course of several weeks. She was caught in the act. Now, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John gives us the hearts of those who are asking the question. Verse 6, this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But make no mistake, the story is told in such a way that we are to understand that her sin was grave. It was very recent. And she was caught in it. These three elements biblical commentators have pointed out. 
So verse 5 says, they say to Jesus, now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? Again, they were seeking to test him. But then Jesus curiously does something that we read of in verse 6. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Notice the design of their question, beloved. Matthew Poole, the Puritan of the 1600s, writes this, quote, If he had directed to send her to be punished by the Roman governors who administered justice in capital cases, the people would be fired with indignation, for they looked upon them as invaders of the rights of government that belonged to the Israelites. If he advised them to put her to death by their own power, they would have accused him of sedition as an enemy of the Roman authority. If he had dismissed her as not worthy of death, they would have accused him to the Sanhedrin as an infringer of the law of Moses, as a favorer of dissoluteness, an enemy to civil society and worthy of universal hatred. This malicious design, so craftily concerted, our Savior easily discovered and defeated. End quote. If you notice his response, he doesn't say, well, let's just put her to death. He doesn't say, well, let's take her to Rome to see what they think. He doesn't say, just let her go. Verse 6, knowing that they are testing him, Jesus writes on the ground. Now, what is this writing on the ground? It's actually Aquinas who tells of Augustine in commenting on this passage, he writes, quote, according to Augustine, he did this to show that those who were testing him would be written on the earth, end quote. I began to think about that this week and in studying for this passage came across a host of passages. And before we look at them, let me ask you this question. Have we ever seen mention of fingers or hands writing anything before in Holy Scripture. I believe we have. Turn over to Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13. There we read this passage. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. And of course, who can forget in Daniel chapter 5, the handwriting on the wall. In both of these cases, there is the recognition of judgment against individuals who raise themselves up, who puff themselves up in the face of the living God. And here, with Unbelief in their hearts and the willingness to use the soul of someone else as collateral, these so-called religious leaders seek to test the Christ. And he stoops down on the ground and writes with his finger. What he writes, many have speculated. We need not speculate. The text tells us that he does this. It's a distraction, but there is clear biblical precedent for this idea of judgment 
being written for those who do not believe. Notice what happens next in verse seven. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. This, of course, is in keeping with the law of Moses. They bring the law of Moses to him. He essentially, without quoting a Bible verse from the Old Testament, brings the law of Moses to them. Turn over to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 17. There we read this. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 7. This is a passage of discussion on justice being administered under the old covenant economy. It reads this beginning in verse 6. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hands of all the people. So you shall put away the evil from among you. Adultery was deserving of death. So Jesus, knowing the intent of their heart, says to them, you're witnesses, are you not? You've said you're witnesses. Whoever among you is without sin, cast the first stone. And then the drama unfolds, doesn't it? He again stoops down and writes on the ground. Then those, verse 9, who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. Think of the picture. You are a woman caught in adultery. The judgment is against you. You are brought to the very temple, perhaps clearly aware of the law. You quickly believe that stones will be hurled your way. And Jesus simply speaks. He among you who is without sin cast the first stone. Are you not braced? Are you not flinching? Ready for the stones to fly? You are, after all, guilty, aren't you? One by one, if there are stones in hand, they are being dropped. One by one, the crowd immediately surrounding you, the crowd at whose hands you thought you would face your physical death, begin to disperse. The text tells us that eventually, verse 9, Of all the people who brought the woman into the midst of the larger teaching assembly, only Jesus is left with the woman standing in the midst. Now, brothers and sisters, as I read this passage this week, John chapter 8, verse 9, the last sentence was like a ray of glorious hope to my soul. Just read that with me as one who is a sinner And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. There you are with Jesus. 
Twice now, Jesus seems to pay no mind to those who are asking him, attempting to trick him, what they should do. Twice he seems to pay them no mind and to write on the ground. This ought to make us remember the words from several chapters earlier in John chapter 3, verse 17. Do you remember what the scripture says was the purpose of Jesus' coming? John chapter 3, verse 17. Of course, we all remember John 3, 16, but John 3, 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. This is important for us to consider as we ask the question, what's happening in this passage? But Jesus is not as it were, a temple religious leader. He is not, under this economy, given the ability to make such decisions. Of course, you know what I mean. He's not recognized as one who would carry out such a sentence. But as you think about the sinful woman standing with Jesus in the midst, you ought to think, because you know the rest of the story, of the wonderful comfort that that would be. But just for a moment, just for a moment, think of it this way. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in her midst. What had Jesus said to these accusers to cause them all to leave? He who is without sin among you, throw a stone at her first. One by one they leave. We do not know whether this woman was fully acquainted with who Jesus of Nazareth was. But for several reasons, it is right that Jesus remains. And before you rush to gospel comfort, remind yourself of this. Jesus was actually the only one there who could do what he told them to do. He could pick up a stone. He could cast it at her, for he indeed was without sin. And as some commentators of ancient times point out, perhaps this woman thought, he will throw a stone at me. Christ is rightly the only person standing with her. He was sinless. It was not just that he has the ability to get out of a trick But he didn't have to go anywhere. He actually could have picked up a stone and not been hypocritical. You see, that was what the problem was. Jesus knew that they were trying to test him, to entrap him. The issue was not that they were zealous for God's law. And Jesus, wisely not falling into any of their traps, handles them. But then notice what happens next. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. This is actually your testimony, by the way, not that people rush you in trying to trick Jesus. Not that people rush you, the sinner, into Jesus' presence. But this is your story. You, the sinner, with Christ. Verse 10. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, 
Where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Notice that Jesus offers a beautiful display of mercy. Really, this is your testimony as a sinner. For you have committed all of your sins, and whether they're public or private, they are very much known to King Jesus. Your sins are clearly on display before his eyes. He knows each and every thought and deed and act and word. Some of them perhaps as grave, perhaps even more grave than the sins of this woman. This is your story, really. And Jesus says to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now that last word is very important, particularly to those early Christians, perhaps, who were tempted to think this story is so full of grace and mercy, it might actually lead to sin. You know, this was one of the arguments that was recycled throughout church history. It was recycled again in the 15 and 1600s during the Reformation. You Protestants are going to lead people to sin with such a doctrine of grace. But the gospel has always been. The work of Christ has always been. Condemnation removed. Now go live in the light of it. And flee from sin. That is the message of scripture. Jesus very much is not giving her a license to sin. But revealing how the law's thunder in our guilt is absorbed ultimately in him with the call that we take seriously what he has done for us. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I want us to see as we close four lessons as we gaze at Christ in the midst of the crowd with the woman who is a sinner. The first lesson, beloved, is this. The person of Christ reveals our heart toward others in sin. Let me say that again. The person of Christ reveals our heart toward others in sin. Yes, we will in just a moment get to the glorious picture that there is here of the mercy of Christ toward the sinner. But before we do that, what is the main context of what is happening? The sovereign God of the universe who has assumed a full and complete humanity is walking, tabernacling among men. This Messiah is walking moment by moment in front of the eyes and the ears of the people of Jerusalem, and they miss him. And in the midst of missing him, there is an arrogance and a pride in their unbelief, such that they're willing to take one 
whose soul and life is indeed troubled, and use it as a test to count her as cheap. Their intent is not zeal for the glory of God. Scripture makes clear they want to get rid of Jesus. But they can't. He is on full display. And who he is reveals their heart attitude towards others who are caught in sin. If you think about the recesses of your own heart and how you view others in sin. If you could imagine the living Christ who is very much in our midst. But if you could imagine that physically, what would that actually reveal about your own heart? Would he have in view towards others caught in sin the view that you have? Is the view of your heart toward others caught in sin the same as the Savior's? The person of Christ reveals our heart towards others in sin. But secondly, the work of Christ is the restoration of sinners. You see, many have wrestled with this passage. And it seems almost to put Jesus in the position where he's working against the law of God. In fact, some would say that, you know, Jesus came to throw off the law of God. But that's not at all what he did. Not one jot or tittle would pass away from it till it was all fulfilled. Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now, this passage is not Jesus trying to say there was a problem with Moses. I'm going to offer grace. Let's get rid of the rigid requirements. The entire context here is Jesus being tempted to be ensnared by these individuals. Remember why he was sent. John three sixteen and 17. He was sent to save sinners. This is his work. Commenting on this passage, Matthew Henry the Puritan writes this. In this he attended to the great work which he came into the world about. And that was to bring sinners to repentance, not to destroy, but to save. He aimed to bring not only the prisoner to repentance by showing her his mercy, but the prosecutors too by showing them their sins. They sought to ensnare him. He sought to convince and convert them. Thus, the bloodthirsty hate the upright, but the just seek his soul. End quote. This did not happen in the passage, but I think Matthew Henry is absolutely right. Would that one of those whose conscience was pricked remained with her and said, I have sinned too. Would not our Savior have said, go and sin no more? I don't condemn you. The work of Christ is the restoration of sinners. This would have been a grand opportunity for Christ to build an earthly kingdom. This would have been a golden opportunity for him to say, you know what? We should stone her 
And actually, we should rise up against those who keep us from honoring Moses. This would have been a perfect moment for Jesus to bring about an earthly kingdom, gathering all of them together. It's just that that would not have led to the cross. And that's why he came. The work is the restoration of sinners, the work of Christ. Thirdly, in this text, we see this. The way of Christ reveals the sinner's greatest friend. Again, I take us back to verse 9, the latter part. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Notice his compassion. Notice his gentleness. Notice his approach. He knew where the accusers were. Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Doing as Jesus often does with sinners who seem to be repentant in heart, asking them questions. Seeing if there be faith in their souls. No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. The way of Christ in moments like this. And in moments like the way that he has worked by his spirit in our hearts reveals that Jesus is the sinner's greatest friend. Now, boys and girls. We can say that Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is our friend. He is not only our friend. And when we use that word, we don't mean like a buddy, like our friends that we play with after school or after church on the playground. But we actually can say that Jesus is a friend to sinners. The truest friend, the one who lays down his life for his friend. Jesus' way is on full display here. So think where we've been thus far. The person of Christ reveals our heart towards others in sin. Jesus does in this encounter what most would not do. The work of Christ is the restoration of sinners. And the way of Christ reveals the sinner's greatest friend. Listen, boys and girls. You are a sinner. You were born that way, just like your parents and their parents, all the way back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. And in your sin, you do things and you think things and you say things that offend God, that are against God's ways. And your life will be marked by this kind of sin. You will not ever be able to perfectly honor God with your life or with your heart or with your mouth. And God says that the penalty for our sins is death. But we have a sinner's friend, Christ Jesus, who stands with us and offers himself as our complete substitute. You see... Many, of course, would say that this woman came to have faith in Christ. And if that is the case, her sins would be paid for 
just a little while from this encounter. For her adultery, Christ would be crushed. For her adultery and other associated sins, Christ would bleed and die. They aren't empty words, neither do I condemn you. No, I take on your condemnation, he says to the sinner. So we have a friend. The sinner's greatest friend. But lastly, we would be remiss if we didn't note this. The mercy of Christ compels us to fight sin. The mercy of Christ compels us to fight sin. Look at verse 11. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And this is what Augustine was saying. And Ambrose before him in early church history. The people who read this text that are afraid that women will hear this text seem to forget that the Lord who says, neither do I condemn you, where are your accusers, is the Lord who says, go and sin no more. It is the very mercy of Christ that compels us to fight sin. For the rest of her days, that last sentence would ring in her ears. Do those words not ring in your ears, believer? That Christ, who could condemn you, has died for you and has shown you extravagant mercy and grace. And do not those words, as you encounter Christ and his mercy, compel you to fight sin by his spirit? The mercy of Christ compels us to fight sin. Jesus masterfully doesn't deny the law of Moses. He masterfully doesn't fall into the trap of having to be dragged before the Sanhedrin on the one hand or dragged before the Roman occupiers on the other. He masterfully gets out of this test as he does in other instances. But he doesn't drag the soul of this woman in the dirt where the religious leaders had brought her. Oh, that we would see in the glorious mercy and grace of the gospel of our King of Kings, not only the restoration of our own soul, not only that he is our greatest friend, but that this mercy propels us. It fixes our gaze on the call to fight sin and temptation, but also that this mercy and grace in the face of Jesus Christ reveals to us remaining sin sometimes, remaining sin that looks a little bit like these Pharisees. Hearts that care less about those who are trapped in sin. This account brings Jesus right into the midst, doesn't it? Augustine tells us, likely in the early 400s, some want to get rid of this story because it seems so full of mercy. And yet this story appears 
all over the regions of the early church. Every region trumpeting this story. An overwhelming number of ancient manuscripts contain this story. And here we are today, able to benefit from phrases like, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in her midst. Or phrases like, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This, indeed, is glorious mercy. Mercy which propels those of us who walk in front of the face of Jesus Christ to consider not only the glories of how our souls have been saved, but also the glories of what Jesus can do for other sinners who are caught in the very act of sin. Brothers and sisters, consider this glorious and true account of how a Savior handles wicked sinners. Let's pray. Almighty God, help us to glean strength and faith from this text. Help us to consider the souls of others. Help us to consider the call placed on our lives who have encountered Christ and his mercy. The call to go and to sin no more. And when we do, to fall on our face again before the Savior who receives sinners. Who came into the world to save sinners. Of course, there is coming a day when the minutes and the hours of time remaining for repentance will be over. When judgment will swiftly come. But until that day, Lord, we pray that by your spirit, each one in this room will consider the overwhelming, the breathtaking mercy of the Christ who laid his life down for sinners. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.